0: Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Masterworks. For decades, tech CEOs like Jeff Bezos, Eric Schmidt, and Bill Gates have been pouring millions into an exclusive asset class that has generated attractive returns for decades. But you wouldn't know by looking at their portfolios. What do they invest in that you don't? Blue Chip Art, a global asset class that is expected to grow from $1.7 to $2.6 trillion by 2026. The only problem, unless you have a cool $10 billion laying around, you can't be a part of this billionaire's club until now. Masterworks.io is making it possible for everyone to invest in multi-million dollar works by artists like Warhol and Banksy. Over the last 25 years, contemporary art prices outperformed the S&P 500 by 172%. So if you're looking for a nearly uncorrelated real asset to add to your portfolio, head to masterworks.io. Tell them Animal Spirits sent you to skip their 10000 person wait list. And in case you missed it, we chatted with masterworks.io CEO Scott Lin last month in our episode, Is Art Recession Proof? So check that one out too. See a disclaimer at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. There was a long piece in The New Yorker over the weekend about Chamath polyapatia. It was called The Pied Piper of Specs. I just want to read one thing from that article. So Chamath is in a room. I think he was pitching Virgin Galactic. One listener, an older gentleman, conservatively dressed, began interrupting Paliapathia to question both his track record and his projections. Paliapathia let the man spat off for a bit and then replied, you're a complete fucking idiot. The older man looked as if someone had just punched him. Have you ever even looked at the prospectus? Did you even fucking Google me before you came in here? All the eyes in the room went wide. How lazy are you, Pali said. I don't even want your fucking money.
1: I think this profile was about what you would have expected from him. (laughs) He is a smart guy who is also extremely arrogant. That was the takeaway from this
0: piece. And also extremely charismatic. Like when he is in a room, he just commands all of the attention. And almost like hypnotizes his audience. So this was the juxtaposition of this with his op-ed is what they call Chef's Kiss. Also from the article, there was an interview on YouTube. Chamath complained, quote, in a traditional IPO, you can't show a forecast and you can't talk about the future of how you want to do things. So for example, with a SPAC, you can. So in the first nine months of 2019, Virgin Galactic had collected only $3.3 million in revenue and had lost $138 million Yet, Chamath back predicted that shortly after closing the merger, the company would start sending people into space and that annual profits would hit a quarter billion dollars by 2023. Virgin failed to achieve essentially every projection set forth in Polyapathia's merger proposal. For example, the forecast of 2020 revenues was $31 million, but the company collected only $238,000. <laughs> Just a bit outside, okay. huh? 31 million, and they got $238,000. So the reason why this is very rich in irony is because Chamath had an op-ed at Bloomberg last week. The headline obviously captured people's attention because it's like the pot calling the kettle black. SPACs need more oversight and regulation. So I read the piece and I thought it was actually fairly reasonable. I didn't take umbrage with really much in here. However, he said basically the market is signaling that there's too much shit coming out that because SPACs are now trading underwater, that they're just letting any junk through the doors. And so Chamath said, the price action tells me we need more oversight and regulation. It is time to improve the regulations around the SPAC ecosystem with clear and rigorously enforced standards to push for high deal quality and appropriate investor protections. Yeah, agree. But the fact that what he was doing with Virgin, not even two years ago, and then writing this, alarm bells went off all over the place.
1: SPACs are great because we can make up stuff about the future that's not going to happen, basically. You can make these projections that, who cares, no one's going to hold you to them. It's also kind of ironic that he was there from the ground floor on Facebook, basically, and got their mobile strategy off and understands all that stuff. It kind of reminds me of Facebook saying, we need more regulation in social media. They want to pull the ladder up now that they're already at the top. It's the same thing he wants to do with specs, kind of. I don't know. Do you think it's possible in today's day and age to be a young person like this in? They said when he left Facebook, he made hundreds of millions of dollars on the IPO. He was wealthier beyond his dreams. Is it possible with so much of just a flashlight, on this spotlight on people, to not be completely consumed by it and become so arrogant and self-absorbed when you become famous like this? I feel like in the past, so many money managers could just stay out of the public eye, and it's impossible to do today. And I don't think it's possible, no matter how you get famous, to not become a little arrogant and like try to test things on social media, like he seems like he's doing an a b test on social media, like he's at Facebook still the stuff that he tries to do he's very calculating about everything he does. you think that he's like flying off the handle, but I think he's testing people with this stuff, and he's trying to do this
0: but for every tramath and Elon, there's thousands of people doing it I don't want to say the right way, but not this way that we're not seeing you're never going to hear from the people that aren't making noise
1: yeah, but I think that there's more. <laughs> If you're successful today, you are making noise because you can, because of social media. And I'm just saying that that has changed the game in terms of money alone is not enough for most people anymore. You also have to be in the public eye and show how powerful you are and how charming you are or, or how arrogant you are. Like This stuff that he's doing at these pitches, he's doing well, it he, as a show because he knows yes. that it's going to get out and it's going to be a story. He's not like doing this flying off the handle. He's calculating how he does
0: this. He also knows the audience better than anyone, given his time at Facebook. I mean, when you heard him on Patrick's podcast... If you knew nothing about him, you would say, this guy's really relatable. (laughs) Right? (laughs) He is polarizing to say the least. I think that like you either love him or you hate him.
1: Yeah, they they said that in the story.
0: Okay. There's parts of him. I weirdly, as polarizing he is, I don't really feel too strongly one way or the other.
1: It is interesting how much he is trying to make himself into the next Warren Buffett. He wants that label to stick very hard. So his firm is called Social Capital. And the piece in The New Yorker was not very kind about the fact that he shut his fund down and 70 people lost their job or whatever, and he didn't really care. Whatever, it's his money. It's his firm. He could do whatever he wants, I guess. But in his shareholder letter this year that he just published, which is weird, is a 2020 letter that came out in June. Did you read it? I guess he was busy. I skimmed a little bit of it. But he's basically just making this comparison. He's trying to compare his first 10 years to what Buffett did at Berkshire and say like he's already better than Buffett in and- I think he's trying to get that narrative a stick big time.
0: You know what's interesting? And we can nitpick all over the place. And Christopher Bloomstrand sure did. We'll link to this thread in the show notes where he just absolutely eviscerates some of his numbers. But 1965 to 74 does seem like a weird cherry pick considering the numbers in 74 were not great.
1: Well, that was the bottom of a bear market too. There was a huge crash at the end of that. But Buffett started his fund in the 50s. Right. His first family office, basically. So Partnership. Yeah. I don't know. But again, this guy started, like he understands, he was on that Netflix documentary about how Facebook controls your brain, basically. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing.
0: Actually, watching Shemot in that documentary pissed me off. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. The fact that he's now blowing the whistle, it's like, dude, come on.
1: The guy made hundreds of- You built the whistle. Yes. He figured out human nature and how Facebook could take advantage of that. Then he walked away with hundreds of billions of dollars. And now he says, oh, actually, Facebook is bad. So so,
0: there does seem to be some, I guess, his whole income inequality, that seems to be why he's doing all this, at least it's according to him. We'll see whether or not that pans out.
1: Okay. But again, this whole, I'm going to make myself a superstar because I've made a lot of money, that thing I think is just, that ship has sailed and it's here actually, to stay.
0: one anecdote in the story about income inequality that just stunk of bullshit was he was saying that Virgin Galactic was actually going to help income inequality with the super fast travel, which by the way, he blew out of his shares. He's gone. Yeah, he sold. He was a bigger shareholder, and now he's gone. So So what, low-income
1: people are going to travel to space faster? That's going to help them? (laughs) What? (laughs) I know.
0: Come on. All right. right. Acorns. Are they going public via SPAC? What are they doing? Oh, yeah. SPAC. By the way, did you see the news this morning? Krispy Kreme is coming public?
1: Weren't they already a public company before? Then they went private and not public
0: again? I'm not saying that history repeats or rhymes, but they came public in 2000. Okay. And they filed for Chapter 11 in 2005.
1: Every day, there's like 16 anecdotes that show this is the top. One of these is going yeah. to happen.
0: They were up 76% on their IPO day. And interestingly enough, even though they fizzled out, in the three years following their IPO, they were the most successful stock in that three-year window. They were up like 550% or something like that.
1: Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Their donuts are okay. I mean, I consider oh, myself a donut it. kind of sort. Oh, what? You think you're a big They're Christopher guy?
0: Huge.
1: Okay, see this, is why, see, this is why your bagel takes don't resonate with me because you think Krispy Kreme are really good. They're just okay. They're like middle of the road. Hard to It's sleep. like McDonald's. It's like, yeah, it's okay.
0: What type of donuts do you prefer?
1: Oh, from like a bakery. I'm a bakery guy. I don't go to a chain like Dunkin' or Krispy Kreme. Come on.
0: I don't like Dunkin' Donuts, but Krispy Kreme donuts, that's my jam. All By right. the way,
1: you know what the best donut in the world is? The cronut. No, this is my dad joke. Two donuts. There that's the best donut. Every time. Two. That's my order.
0: All right. So Acorns, they're relatively tiny, at least compared to, I guess, Robinhood. Not that they're the same thing.
1: Well, $2.2 billion back they're being taken public at it, it looks like.
0: Okay. So I spoke to Crystal Kim from Bloomberg about this. Are the users of these companies going to support the stock? And my knee-jerk reaction was, no, definitely not.
1: Meaning if you're an Acorns user, are you going to also buy the IPO or buy the stock? Yes.
0: I don't want to say definitely not. If it works, then yeah, sure. But if it's not, they're not going to come in and like, have any loyalty to Robinhood. Robinhood users do they even like Robinhood? It's like same thing with Twitter. Some Twitter users hate Twitter. So I don't think they're going to show any loyalty to the stock if it's not working.
1: I mean Acorn, their whole plan is predicated around helping you save small amounts of money and like leftover amounts of money. That doesn't seem like it's someone who's gonna be an IPO buyer most of the time, right?
0: Right. Dave Wilson from Bloomberg showed a chart which anecdotally confirms what just watching the market, it's been fairly quiet. US equity volume reached the lowest level of the year on Monday. So it's been pretty quiet the past few days, with the exception of the meme stocks.
1: This is what's different about the internet age. You had GameStop and AMC and all these stocks have the huge run-up that you see in a bubble, and then the huge spike down. And you go, okay, this looks exactly like every bubble in history. And then they went sideways for a while, and now they're spiking again. That doesn't happen. And it's kind of like Bitcoin. Bitcoin had spike and then the fall in 2017, and then it went nowhere for a few years, and then now it's back and it makes 2017 look like nothing.
0: So what do we call bubbles that burst and then reinflate two days later?
1: <laughs> What's the gum? Double bubble? This is from the Wall Street Journal. Short sellers who bet, and this is a few days old, so it's probably even worse now. Short sellers who bet against GameStop, Hertz, and AMC have lost more than $8 billion this year shorting the stock. I mean, this is If you're like someone who went to an Ivy League school, like you went to Wharton, got your MBA, and you have your CFA, and you've been doing discounted cash flow models your whole career at a hedge fund, and you're the smartest person there. Have you not just been punching yourself in the face for the last 18 months watching this stuff? Okay, listen, GameStop is obvious. Here's the fair value, and here's the fair value for AMC. And then all these people on a Reddit message board come and take billions from you. This is an actual risk now for these hedge funds. Did you listen to Carson Block with Barry? No. What is his takeaway?
0: That markets are broken.
1: Okay. Or as a short seller, you have to adapt. You could say markets are broken, but guess what? If there's 20 or 30 or 40 or 100% short interest in a stock, don't be in it. You can't be short a stock that has people wanting to make a squeeze on it.
0: I agree. I get the frustration. Like if you've dedicated your career to being a serious market observer, participant, Analyzing these businesses, and then you just get blown up by the meme stocks. Okay. Counterpoint this stuff is
1: not going away. We're in a new age of communication and internet and data access and people being able to move markets, basically. Like, you have to adapt. I'm sorry. Like, you can't just sit there and be like, well, I'm going to change my percentage by 0.3% instead of 0.4%. And that's going to spit out the value. And like, those days are over, especially in the short term for stuff like this. So I gave my Guy Fieri theory. Of the internet, I think I've been working on this for a while with you. I think I said this once, and our podcast equipment got broken, we had to start over or something, so I saved it. I think this people start liking something ironically, like Dogecoin or AMC and GameStop, and then you get these camps of people. So you have one on this side and one on this side, and they go at it. And then the stuff we first started liking ironically, we end up like kind of digging our heels in, and then we accidentally really like it. So Guy Fieri, when he came out in the Food Network. He became wildly popular, but then he had like crazy hair and the sunglasses from like 1994 and the weird clothes. And he was easy to be like mocked. Like people mocked him easily. If you're a hipster, you don't like Guy Fieri. But then the backlash to that happened. And everyone's like, wait, wait, wait. This guy's actually not bad. He likes what he does. He's all this food looks great. Guy Fieri is the man, Flavor Town. And it's like people like, ironically liked Guy Fieri because everyone else already hated him. And then that irony actually turns into like people actually like him. And now, like, Guy Fieri is like a hero. I feel like that's what happens in the internet. Like, these lines get blurred. I said the same thing happened with Steve A. Smith and Joe Buck and some of these people. This is what's happening with, like, Dogecoin and AMC and GameStop, where people, like, get into it because it's fun and it's a meme, and then <laughs> the irony goes away, and then they're like, oh, wait, we actually kind of like this, actually. And then they push it to heights that
0: it's wild. So... I don't have a counter theory, so let's just go with your Guy Fieri theory, because it's really difficult to explain what's going on. <laughs> right. I just think... Mostly, you can like craft a narrative, even if it's like kind of bullshit. But like, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like right now, like, what's the story here? What are people telling themselves is happening with GameStop and AMC?
1: Here's the thing: the internet has broken our brains. Like, I don't want to do the whole "We were on the savanna and there was tigers chasing us" that whole <laughs> thing that everyone does on every behavioral book and podcast. But the sheer amount of opinions and data and information and pictures and what social media posts flying at us every day we're not ready for this. And I think we've even become more ingrained in... I don't want to turn this into a diatribe, but you look at all the weird stuff happening now with people's behavior coming out of the pandemic. There's fights at airports and fans at NBA games throwing stuff and being nasty. And I think living on the internet for 15 months has screwed people's heads up even more. Think about the insurrection thing on January 6th. They didn't really even want to do anything. They wanted to get pictures for social media. They, they didn't actually want to overturn the government. They wanted to have social media posts. Like I think that's where... I think the internet has just broken a lot of people's brains. And I think some of this stuff is... And I would just say, expect weird stuff in the markets to keep happening because the internet, we're just not ready for it. That's kind of where I stand.
0: I went back to the theater on Saturday night to see A Quiet Place too. How was, was it? How was incredible. the theater? Theater was good. Every other row was vacant. And so it is... That sounds
1: lovely to me. So like no one can sit by you? That's
0: great. It was pretty great. Well, people could sit next to you, but whatever. So A Quiet Place is the perfect movie theater movie. It is so freaking tense. And I think- the second So you, one of was course, actually... went alone? Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, the second one was actually, I think, better than the first. Did you enjoy really? the first? Or... I
1: love you... the first one. That was one of my okay. favorite movies of the last five or 10 years, whenever it came Me out. Me too.
0: The second one was even better. They just killed it. So that's the okay. type of movie that is about two X better in the theater than at home. But it's quiet often. And so there were some kids in the back being kids- They were probably 13 years old. They wouldn't shut up. They were making noises, scary noises, whatever. And a good Samaritan next to me was like, got up. And he was like, can you all shut the fuck up? (laughs) I paid money for this movie. (laughs) I was like, well, I'm glad he did it because I was getting kind of annoyed. Would you have
1: said something if no one else did?
0: No, never. Okay. No, no. I'm afraid of (laughs) 13-year-olds. So that was early on in the movie. and Then they shut up for the rest of the time.
1: Okay. So they needed to be put in their place, huh?
0: I don't know if that was a pandemic thing. I feel like 13-year-olds are going to be 13-year-olds regardless, but it was good to be back in the theater. That's for sure.
1: Okay. Counterpoint. Whatever they charge, I would pay for it right now if I could watch it at home.
0: I would go to the theater for that
1: one, but if they had it on demand, I would certainly buy it right now.
0: I probably would have too, but boy, am I glad that I went to the theater because that was one hell of a movie theater experience. Okay. I'm going to create like some
1: sort of Daniel Kahneman bias for you in movies at the movie theater. Like, What's that bias... The movie theater bias or something.
0: Yeah. Well, but it's a real thing because at home, unless it's like gripping, like Mayor of Town, which we'll get to later, is the first show in quite a while that I don't have my phone. And it's not because I want to pay attention. It's because the show is gripping and I'm not distracted. Same thing with in a movie. At home, unless the movie is really gripping, you're going to be on your phone. You're going to have the lights on. You're going to get whatever. In a movie, I just love that it's distraction-free. That's like To me, that's the big thing. It's distraction-free. You listen to every word. And of course, the sound and the big screen. It's just, yeah, movies are way better than theater.
1: I don't know. Pre-streaming days in high school and college, once a week at least, we'd go to the movie. I can still enjoy a movie at home. That's where I am. Call me an old man. I still get as much enjoyment watching at home as I do at the theater.
0: I don't believe you. That's my- <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I know you're saying that, but I'm, I'm just telling you, if you went to see A Quiet Place too, like objectively, it's just better than theater. Not every movie, but that movie.
1: All right. I don't see it.
0: All right. Back to market. So State Street did this interesting piece where they break down where companies are spending their money. So over the last five years, M&A, 13%. R&D, 13%. Dividends, 19%. Buybacks, 27%. CapEx, 28%. So this chart that they show of research and development, companies are spending money. There's like this whole thing about companies are buying back shares instead of putting it to productive use. That's nonsense. That's just not true.
1: The whole point here is like this unappreciated business spending boom is a bullish indicator for the stock market. There's been more investment than meets the eye. I also think all the shortages we're seeing, it could be a short-term negative, but a long-term positive if it gets more investment from some of these companies. And don't you think it's possible that like we thought, okay, the roaring twenties this year, and it sounds like we're still gonna have relatively high economic growth this year, like six or seven percent, which is the highest it's been in a long time. But don't you think all this shortage stuff that is gonna hopefully cause people to just lower their demand is going to maybe extend this economic run for us? Like a lot of this people can't buy cars and they can't buy houses and stuff right now because there's so much of a shortage. Doesn't that just extend those purchases into the next year? And maybe this boom lasts longer.
0: So maybe 2022 is the boom year.
1: Yeah. It's like this year is going to be potentially stops and starts because of all this stuff. And then 2022, if these companies are able to get their supply chains back online, then that demand will come to fill it again. I don't know. Just a thought.
0: Did you listen to Roshan and Patel with Tracy and Joe on AdLots talking about like what's going on over the weekend? Why are markets crashing, Bitcoin markets?
1: No. Is he following my 24-7 theory that- them trading 24/7 is making the crashes weirder.
0: Yeah, so there's it's kind of like a shoulder shrug like we're not really exactly sure what's going on, but one of the things that he was talking about was that like western markets and eastern markets they're different in the way that they treat bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general.
1: So there's more speculation in the other markets or what?
0: I'm just going to tell you to listen to the podcast, but it was interesting that like I never really considered that that there's different people all playing in the same market at different times.
1: All right, that makes sense. I can see that cuz it is such a global asset. So we've had a few people email us about having some issues with their crypto getting taken or scammed or some of these things. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing right now that it's hard to send people money because I had to send you some money for something that you and I are investing in in the last weeks, And I needed to send you $6,000 and I couldn't do it in one day. I had to do it in like a three-day increment because I had a level of $2,000 to send you.
0: Or you could pay 50 bucks for a wire, however much it costs.
1: So instead of paying the money, I sent it to you over a course of a few days. I guess that's the whole blockchain solves this.
0: Of course it does.
1: (laughs) Is the thing. But here's something I've been thinking about. And the block wrote a post about this, how total stable coin supply is now across the $100 billion mark.
0: The tether thing, like there's a lot of smoke out there. Yeah. that this is not real.
1: Okay. But hear me out here. This is, I'm preheating a take. It's still at 100 degrees. You remember in John Bogle's book, Stay the Course, he did like a history of himself and Vanguard. It was his last book. It was an amazing book. Excellent. He wrote a chapter about the history of money market funds, which sounds awfully boring to someone who's not in finance. But to me, I found it fascinating because money markets basically saved Vanguard until they could convince enough people in the late 70s, early 80s, that time period where no one still wanted to invest in index funds, that money markets really saved them because they were not a thing back then. And Vanguard became a huge player in the money market fund, and that saved them until enough people came in index funds. And money markets were really only created in like the late 70s, early 80s. Now they're sort of ubiquitous as a cash equivalent. Could stablecoins be that to crypto? Stablecoins are the money market where whoever figures this out the most and gets the most money in stablecoins ends up winning the crypto game in terms of they're the vanguard of it because that is the boring thing that keeps them along until they can create other products for people to get into. Thoughts?
0: Sure, sure.
1: Or Are you looking at it from the people think stablecoins aren't backed by enough dollars and it's all a big Ponzi scheme? That's the worry. Okay. So that's where you're going.
0: Well, I don't know. So somebody sent us a video. I watched it and compelling, but I can't prove or disprove it.
1: Okay. I'm thinking of these things have gotten so huge in the chart in that. I mean, it's just like a straight line up in terms of the value of these things. And are those things going to be enough to get the ability to transfer money?
0: It seems like the stable coins are coming as a way for people to speculate. It's being used as collateral So Mark Rubenstein did this post. So Mark Rubenstein is a traditional finance guy, hedge fund bank analyst for his whole career. And then he wrote about his experience down the crypto rabbit hole.
1: Read the highlighted part that you sent to me. I thought this was pretty funny.
0: (laughs) He's on the phone talking with a customer rep. And he said, Rob left me, Rob's the person he was talking to, Rob left me with a caution to be careful about being scammed. Ha! He doesn't know that I'm a financially literate professional investor with 25 plus years of trading and investing experience. I hung up and moved the funds across. And then I got scammed. What was he investing in? Shitcoins, basically? I forget. What was the email that we got, by the way, about the guy being scammed?
1: It was a phishing scam. It was basically like, hey, Coinbase says log onto your account to make sure something's not wrong with your Bitcoin. And he logged on. And then the people had his login credentials and stole
0: all his Bitcoin. You wrote a book called Don't Fall For It. And we spoke about this. Like, this is just, there already are.
1: Rule number one, if a company emails you to tell you, if it's a bank or Amazon or whoever, if they email you to tell you, Your account has been compromised. Click here to log on. Never click the link. Log on to the account yourself or just delete it because it's probably fake.
0: So Mark Rubenstein was buying DAI, which is a stable coin. And he said, which just echoed my sentiments perfectly. My only problem is that I'm not entirely clear what borrowers are doing with my DAI. Most of the activity on the platform and across DeFi generally appears to revolve around speculation. Others are borrowing my coins so they can buy more coins. There's a great line. Speculation accompanies real world activity everywhere, but it rarely leads it. For now, at least, the impact my new decentralized bank has on the real economy appears limited.
1: So until they figure out how to handle title insurance, DeFi doesn't do much.
0: But I don't know. Everybody's convinced that this is the future. Here was
1: the line from Druckenmiller that someone posted this weekend. I thought was good. He basically said, whatever all the rich young people that graduate from Stanford put their money into, that's where I'm going. And they're all putting their money into this. And he goes, I don't know what it means, but it means if these rich, smart people are doing it, it's going to lead to something. That's the hope. But it is still a strategy that's based purely on hope and not on real-world applications yet.
0: We spoke maybe on spaces. By the way, we do spaces every Wednesday at 4. And we said, like, are there any relatively old people that are actually bullish on crypto? Maybe Cuban. Not that he's old, but he's probably close to 60.
1: Every time we talk about it, I get an email from a boomer reader who says, like, I just don't get it. It's tulip bulbs. Tell me why I'm wrong.
0: Well, and actually Miller and Paul Tudor-Jones, they're not spring chickens. So Carl Icahn, definitely an octogenarian, he said that he's interested in getting into crypto in a big way, may eventually put more than a billion dollars into an alternative currency. Here's a quote from him. Well, what's the value of the dollar? The only value of the dollar is because you can use it to pay taxes. I'm looking at the whole business and how I might get involved in it. So I don't know what he's doing, but there you go.
1: By the way, do you remember when six years ago, Carl Icahn drew the picture of the Fed pushing a bus off of a cliff saying that BlackRock High Yield Fund was going to take down the market.
0: Yes, I do remember that. And I wrote a post called, With All Due Respect, Mr. Icon." This is 2015.
1: Yeah, I think it was a long time ago. And he said high yield is going to bring down the market. Yeah, he's like, this is the Rascati in plain sight. But this is the interesting thing about the anti-Fed people to me. So many of the people who have been anti-Fed and wrong about the markets and wrong about... Fed policy and what it means. And the Fed is painted into a corner. There's nothing else they can do. A lot of those people have now gone from like being gold bugs because that hasn't worked to being crypto people. And it's really interesting to see that shift to be like, you know what, instead of bashing the Fed from this angle, I'm going to bash the Fed from this angle. And they're not really like true crypto believers. I think they're just more anti-Fed people that are being embraced by crypto because of it.
0: It is weird how a lot of the financial media, and I get why they do it, but... Just the nonstop obsession every single day with risk, with the big risk. For individual investors, I feel like every single day, they have to like constantly like fight away negativity. You know that Shaq gif where he's like fighting away the headlines? It's just constant. And Miller was talking about it.
1: Well, it's kind of funny he would talk about it because he's been warning about stuff every speech too. But one of my favorite cartoons is the people on an airplane and the guy is yelling, we're all going to die. And it was like minor turbulence. And it was like, what's his deal? And it's like, he's a financial media member or something. One of those. Yeah. I don't know. I think a lot of that is still stems from 08. And I think a lot of media feels like they missed the boat before that crash. And it was kind of like, that's not going to happen to me
0: again. I think that's certainly a part of it. I think it's also like, that sells. That clicks. Like Miller warns or Economist warns. It's the same thing with the Weather Channel. You're not going to watch it. Oh, it's 70 and sunny, no clouds. Like They have to sort of scare people because if it bleeds, it leads. All right. Benjamin Applebaum did this thread on inflation. He wrote that great book, The Economist Hour, one of the better books I've read in the last few years. I find the fixation on 1970s inflation puzzling for several reasons. Inflation really wasn't that high, certainly not by the standards of historically memorable inflation. Also, high inflation was good for a lot of people. Student loan debt disappeared. Home ownership spiked. I think a lot about this guy quoted in the Times in 1978 from his book. But Americans were losing patience with inflation. People tended to see higher wages as just rewards and higher prices as theft. They dreamt of what their increased wages could have purchased if prices had just stayed the same. Terry McClam, a bread salesman from Raleigh, North Carolina. See, Ben, they found these people even 40 years ago. (laughs) Terry McClam, I wonder what he's doing. Terry McClam, a bread salesman from Raleigh, North Carolina, told a reporter in 1978 that he had abandoned his dream of buying a home. He didn't seem to realize that his income had outstripped inflation by 14% over the previous five years people hate the loss of purchasing power. It's that this whole, I don't know if it's a conspiracy mindset, but it's this whole erosion of dollar, they're stealing from me, this is the end. That's that whole mentality.
1: Probably the two things people hate the most in this realm is inflation and taxes. We've talked about working in the wealth management industry. You could make someone hundreds of thousands of dollars on an investment and they wouldn't be nearly as excited as if you saved them $1,000 in taxes. I think it falls under that same realm.
0: So somebody emailed us, you say owning a house is a good thing in an environment of inflation. How? Is a house a bond? With higher inflation, home values would decrease as demand shrinks. Sure, and real returns, home, whatever he said. But no, I think the point is a house is the opposite of a bond. If you're a bondholder, inflation is bad because fixed income is fixed. And every coupon payment that you're getting is worth less and less and less. It's the exact same thing in opposite with a mortgage. The
1: bank is the bond owner in this case.
0: Exactly. Your mortgage is fixed and it becomes relatively less and less and less over time. That's the point.
1: Yeah, you're paying the same exact amount over time and that money is worth less. That's good to you. That's why a fixed rate mortgage is one of the best inflation hedges that there is,
0: bar not And by the way, somebody emailed us saying, I'm surprised that you guys are hating on real estate as an investment. Did we ever? S- I don't think we put that out there.
1: Mm-mm. I think we just said that historically, the numbers show real estate doesn't grow much above the rate of inflation.
0: Yeah. I think maybe people tend to overstate what a good investment real estate is, but I'm not-
1: No. Obviously, real estate has been a great investment in recent years, for sure. It's yeah.
0: just that people look at gross returns without really thinking about the net. That's all. All right. There was an interesting article in the Washington Post that is that rents are falling for the rich and the rising at the lower end. So for example, in Dallas-Fort Worth, rents for apartments at the top end were 1% cheaper in the last quarter of 2020 compared with the year earlier- In Chicago, they were down 7.6%. Meanwhile, rents for lower end apartments, older to lower quality structures with fewer amenities, have held steady or increased. So they said, what's going on? Well, it's pretty simple. When the economic crisis hit, more people decided to move down the housing ladder to save money. There was already a shortage of affordable units though. So the surge in demand for lower price point homes ended up bidding those rents higher, which is pretty rough. That makes sense.
1: It also shows like if you were a young person and thinking about relocating to a city, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, DC, San Francisco, all the rents for higher-end places are down 10%, 15 20% or whatever, this is your moment to lock in low rent. Before, I mean, it's probably already starting to end, but finally, for some of these places, if you're a young person with a lot of money, you can potentially go rent in one of these big cities.
0: So we got another listener email sharing about what's going on in Phoenix. This is pretty wild. Right, for some Why is Phoenix they-
1: always the epicenter of this housing <laughs> stuff? It was last time. I don't know. This is another double bubble, right? Because they yeah. were, in, you know, in the two thousands as well.
0: For some perspective, we purchased our home in February twenty sixteen for two hundred fifteen k, which was ten k under asking price. Good condition. This guy remodeled. About the very same time, his neighbor purchased his home, a very small two bedroom, eight hundred forty square feet, for about one hundred fifty k. Two weeks ago, he sold his home to Open Door for two eighty two. So again, purchased for one fifty in two thousand sixteen sold for 280 and 90% ROI in six years. That's not the crazy part. Open door sent in a cleaning crew, didn't update a thing, and had the nerve to list it for 335. Per a family who's a real estate agent, it received multiple offers and was under contract in two days. At what point does it stop? At what point does some type of regulation take place on these larger corporations, inflating prices, flip the coin, how long it will take for folks to realize Wow, that's ridiculous. I'm not paying 50K more for the same house that sold 15 days prior. Who's going to be left holding the bag? Sure, maybe the is a little bit, but more likely folks who just want a place to live. I guess holding the bag is... But that's kind of the thing with real estate, why it's such a funky thing, because it's not like stocks where you're flipping them. Yeah, you might overpay, and obviously you can't overpay by a ton, but I don't know.
1: I don't see what regulation does. If someone's willing to pay that money, it is what it is, unfortunately. There's nothing you can do. By the way, this is back to Chamath. Open door is a SPAC.
0: Company at this. (laughs) Did you read Derek Thompson's take?
1: On housing, yes. He interviewed Bill McBride, who we've mentioned a number of times, who's a housing expert and some that I track on this stuff.
0: This was a very nice counterpoint to what we've been saying. Not that it necessarily contradicts it, but my take has been like, I don't think this turns around. I don't think it's going to continue forever. I definitely do think that it will slow down and maybe we'll get a little bit of a pullback, but I don't think it's like a bubble that's going to pop. So should you buy today? Probably not if you can help it.
1: Bill McBride was saying, you should probably think about waiting a year at this point. I think we're getting to the point where waiting makes sense. Here's the thing though. Let's say you decide you don't want to wait because you're worried housing prices are going up. Let's say housing prices go up another eight or 10% nationally over the next year. That'd be crazy, but not out of the realm of possibilities. Let's say in a year you wait and there's demand finally slows and it's just a less stressful process because you don't have to deal with a bunch of people bidding you. So even if home prices are up, but the bidding wars are not there, maybe it makes sense. I liked how he ended it. So he talked about the end and he said, I think when you put it together, the odds that things are getting more normal in a year make a lot of sense. He said, I also want to add something else for couples. Relationships are more important than a house. But I think you can flip this the other way too, where sometimes the relationship part is the reason for buying the house because you want to keep someone else happy that wants to buy a house. And the spouse may say, I don't care how crazy the housing market is. I want a house now. And so I think you're probably getting a lot of that too. So I can see for it sure. going both ways. But I do think with the rent stuff falling, if you're someone who's renting and could potentially wait, and I think renting is becoming more attractive by the day for people who are okay with it still. And not in any that they have to move right this instance.
0: An executive at Toll Brothers said, We've never seen migration like this. The real estate company said on an earnest call, just shy of half the buyers who come from out of state in the hottest markets of Idaho, Texas, and Florida. When people leave a multi-million dollar house in, say, Los Angeles to plunk out a million dollars in a house that was worth $500,000 a year ago, they turn a merely frenzied housing market into a once in history, hair on fire, what the hell is happening bonanza.
1: So these people who are already used to paying high real estate prices are now going to other places. Unfortunately, for people who live there, it's like, you live in a desirable area. This is what is potentially going to happen. There's, again, nothing you do to stop this.
0: I want to think that if I was in the position of trying to buy a house right now, that I would wait. But there's no FOMO like real estate FOMO.
1: Right. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Yes. And especially if you're at that point in your life, you realize, like, okay, we've done it. We've rented for a while. I'm ready to be in a house. I don't care. Let's make it happen. If it's an extra 30 grand, let's do it. Like, some people are just going to say that.
0: Yeah. Getting back to the if it bleeds, it leads. This headline from the Wall Street Journal suddenly wealthy from markets, some millennials are stressed. Is this really a story?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. So, we talk about basically. This is nothing but clicks. Pretty much. But I think there's something to the fact that, don't you think some millennials are just going to be anxious about everything? They're anxious about the job market coming out. They're anxious about paying off student loans. People are anxious. People are anxious. Now it's saying people have money. Now, what are they going to do with it? And they're saying, like, this is my one chance. I don't want to mess it up. And I get that. But at a certain point, you just have to, like, be okay that things may work out great or they may not. But, like, if you're constantly worried about money. So this is this one
0: from market. You know, what my superpowers remember in I'm drawing a blank. What was the Marvel show that was just on with Vision? Oh, WandaVision. You know, the witch that like there's like superheroes that can like suck in people's powers. Okay. My superpower is sucking people's anxiety. Like if I'm around people that are like anxious, I absorb all that anxiety. And I don't think I'm like an anxious person myself. But when I'm around people that are anxious,
1: you get anxious as well. or you stem the tide is what you're saying?
0: No, I absorb it all. Maybe both actually. Interesting. Okay.
1: So here's another one from Watch. They have these questions they us. I'm 49. My wife is 34. We have four kids and $2.3 million saved. I earn 300K a year, but lose a lot of sleep worrying about tomorrow. And oh, by the way, this person also owns eight rental properties that spit out income on a monthly basis.
0: What's, just like the British saying, oh, fuck off. Oh, yes. session. Come on. Says Come they said they lose I mean,
1: a lot of sleep worrying about tomorrow. So this is what I'm getting at, like the anxiety thing. Like, I understand no one's life is perfect and there's always something to worry about, but like the Nick Murray from Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth, his line that always stuck with me is no matter how much you have, how much money you have, if you're still worried you aren't wealthy. At a certain point, it's like, yes, you can still think through everything and pay attention to risk, and but at a certain point, like if you're not content, I don't care if you have $30 million or whatever it is, you're not that rich if you can't enjoy it a little and just be like, okay, you know what? Things are probably going to work out for me.
0: I don't know where the level is but at some point of wealth, money becomes like a liability where it just consumes you and your spending inflates bigly and you just can't stop worrying about it. Obviously, I have no idea where that is, so I guess it's different for everybody. It could be a million for some people, 10 million, 50 million for others. But getting back to the anxiety thing, are we making too big a deal out of this? Is this social media? Like, Do we see headlines like this? and then- we inflate what's actually going on with society. It's very hard to really drill down to see what's happening.
1: I do think part of it there's been some stories written that millennials like in 2008 saw their parents potentially lose their home and they've seen like what a crash can And so they are thinking from a totally different mindset than baby boomers or gen x because they've been through the ringer kind of they're like listen, I finally got something I don't want to mess it up. So I get that, but it's like if you've gotten to the point where you've made some money in the market's like <laughs> you can't just worry about every little thing. You have to like actually enjoy it at some point too.
0: So Danville tweeted that the Knicks announced round two tickets, which is not looking very likely, will be sold exclusively to fans who are vaccinated.
1: Yeah, that was a kiss of death. Didn't they yeah. announce it after like game one or two?
0: <laughs> Thanks a lot, jerk. <laughs> but is this going to be like we spoke about this probably pre vaccine was like, once there is a vaccine, are people going to need to show it to get into places? Is this going to be the thing?
1: I hope so. At this point, if you haven't gotten it and and a business does this to you, like, okay, it's on you.
0: What about an airline saying like, you can't fly if you're not vaccinated?
1: Yeah, I don't think that would ever fly. Do you? No pun intended. I don't know. That's just- Why not? You think it's a little late for that, for an airline to do it? Yeah, probably. Like if concerts and stuff doing this, like if this is the push, like they showed the Ohio data that they started doing a lottery and a bunch of people went out and got vaccinated. If we have to do this last little push to get enough people there where we're and I think we're already there.
0: Well, what about if an airline said, this is ridiculous, vaccinated people can only fly and three random people will get a free flight?
1: Yeah. They have to do stuff like that. I am perfectly fine with it.
0: Why do you think it wouldn't fly with airlines? Would they receive backlash?
1: Yeah. And they got bailed out. And I don't know. That's just my Uh, thinking. But don't you think that they said initially like July 4th is going to be the weekend? Didn't you feel like Day was like, okay, this felt pretty normal.
0: Well, the weather here sucked, but yeah.
1: It seemed pretty back to me as far as I'm concerned.
0: I want to get your take on this. You know the car engine, the on-off when you're at like a red light?
1: Yeah, it's very bizarre.
0: Is that a scam? What does that do? I don't know. What, it saves you 10 cents of gas a year? What's even the point? I got my new car
1: two months ago, I guess, a month ago. I don't remember. And they had it. I didn't realize that was a thing. And the guy explained it to me like, is that really do something? And he's like, well, you can turn it off if you want. And I don't know, but... It's very is bizarre. Is it to save gas? Save gas. Yeah. Uh, Remember back in the day, though, it used to be like turning your car on and off, wasted gas? Yes. I don't know. Yeah. I don't get it. Because you're at the stoplight and your car is totally silent. It's very bizarre.
0: You got into green beer. You sent me a picture of what you're drinking. Was that Rolling Rock?
1: <laughs> I was drinking Rolling Rock because they were drinking at a Mare of Easttown, and I was like, oh, I haven't had that in a long time.
0: Wait, were they drinking Heineken's or Rolling Rock?
1: They were drinking Rolling Rock and Yangling, which okay. is the... East Coast beer from Philadelphia area.
0: As much as people hate IPAs, or some people, that's my feeling on green beer.
1: Okay. And I get that. It's like bitter, kind of. If you have a Rolling Rock or a Stella that is ice cold at some point, like, I don't know why, it just, it looked good to me and I had one. And that's just like a stuff I drank in high school. But I've gotten to the point where I sometimes make fun of IPA people because it just, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it, but like...
0: I'm an IPA person. Well, what about an 8.3% beer doesn't make sense to you? It's like... They're too happy to me, your- but like,
1: it's just, I've gotten to the point in my life where... Trying to decipher someone else's tastes in food or drinks or it's like people have their own taste and they like what they like. There's no point in trying to talk them down anymore. People like what they like. Yes. Get over it. I like rolling rock.
0: Some people don't. Yeah, not for me. David Shawell tweeted something that was like the thinking man, like the tapping head thing. Everybody and people like myself are trying to like look for concrete use cases with like the whole DeFi thing. I just see it as a tool for more speculation and a way to lend and stake and make money and Shawl tweeted, speculation thrives in ambiguity and hope, not concrete use cases. I thought that was a pretty good take.
1: This is why every innovation in history has led to a bubble because people have the railroads and automobiles and new financial products and the internet. This is why it always ends in a bubble because people are more excited about what could be, not what is.
0: Well said. All right. I forget who tweeted this, but a picture from 1983, which shows the age of different people. This... Dude who's 35. I mean, Ben, that guy's younger than us. Cliff Claven.
1: <laughs> I'm going to be 40 this summer. I look like I could be Cliff Claven's son.
0: This is unbelievable. Why are people Wendt was so Was older? It, I'm trying to think, like, <laughs> if you changed the hairstyle, would that have done it?
1: <laughs> I have no idea. I told you this before. Like The pictures in my old fraternity house in college from the 70s, they all looked like they were 50 years old. What was it? Just because everyone smoked and just ate whatever they wanted and didn't take care of themselves? Why do people look so old in the past? and They look so young now. Inflation, I guess. I don't know. I still look like I'm 17. So you tell me.
0: Uh, let's do some listener questions. I've been most interested in your latest habit of pointing out the questions that you're getting are only questions during a bull market. We got one this weekend. Somebody said, "Hey, I'm saving for a house. I've got 100 grand. What do you think about putting it in a blockfi? Get 8.5 percent." Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And it's not. I mean listen, 8.5%, do you think that's like risk-free? 8.5%? You have to assume that there is a certain level of risk. First and foremost, it's not FDIC insured. You cannot speculate with your housing money. You just can't do it. And so this question that we keep getting is certainly a feature of like a bull market type question. For
1: sure. Wanting more and especially if it's something you're going to want in, I don't know, one, two, three years maybe, How much more are you actually going to earn that's going to be worthwhile to you in something like that? That's the way that I look at it, like the upside versus downside. I just, I don't know. Was wondering what your thoughts are on the future of the financial advice portfolio management business. 21 years old, finishing my bachelor's in finance, and I have an opportunity to take over someone's book of business, $150 million in a couple of years. How would you guys think about it?
0: So, this person's from Canada. I don't know what the wealth management business is like in Canada, but here in these United States, this is the promise. That every senior advisor makes to their junior partner, and it never, ever happens. Right. <laughs> yeah. It never happens. You're gonna retire
1: in a few years because it's not like this is backbreaking work, especially if you can hire a junior person to take it over for you. You're probably going to be servicing those clients, and they're still gonna be earning all the money. That's probably Correct. what would happen.
0: A, they're not going to retire. B, let's just say that they do. You're taking over a book of business where the average age is way older than you. So they're probably not going to want to work with you. You're probably not going to want to work with them. It's just a mess.
1: You're probably going to end up having to build your own book of business eventually. That's probably how it'll end. That's yeah. what I would think.
0: Maybe instead of being negative, we can turn this into a positive. Maybe get in there and try and make relationships with these people and or their children. Maybe that's an idea.
1: Yep. Okay. Recommendations. I thought Mayor of Easttown Finale was awesome. I was actually excited about it for like a few days in advance thinking about it. We were not at home. We were away for the weekend. So we didn't have our cable. This is another reason why I'm never cutting my cable. And all we had was access to the internet. HBO Max was I heard down. It crashed. It crashed. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was tweeting about it. I said HBO Max is the Robin Hood of streaming services. It goes down every time you need it. <laughs>
0: uh, that's a good one. How good was Mayor? Like
1: what a fantastic show.
0: It's the first show in a while where again I said this earlier. I wasn't on my phone, not because I was like, okay, I'm gonna not I just I only wanted to watch a show from Sunday to Sunday. I couldn't wait for the finale. This is why the week-to-week format, if it's a good show, it works so well. The anticipation I agree. building, was, it was just great.
1: This is the one that was better in a week-to-week than if you just binged the whole thing straight through.
0: If you binged it, you would have been like, yeah, good show.
1: Yeah, but it was, Kate Winslet is awesome. We talked about her. But that show, like, I was excited for it, and they we don't do any spoilers or anything, but absolutely delivered on the finale. And you're kind of waiting and waiting, and you're going, something else is coming, something else is coming. And it did, not you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, oh. it was great. New podcast I started on The Ringer called Flying Coach. It's with Peter Schrager, who's on like
0: this. Is that about the Mighty Ducks?
1: No. Sean McVay is a Rams coach, and he's good buddies with Peter Schrager, who's on this NFL Good Morning Show on the NFL Network. And they just talk, and it's Sean McVay became the Rams coach at age 30. Which is wild, and he's kind of telling stories and opening up about it. And they had these two other coaches, the coach from Green Bay and the new Jets coach, on, and they're all buddies, all young guys who came in as coaches at younger and very open about like the coaching process and dealing with fans and the expectations. And it is very good.
0: I don't know how the coach from Green Bay didn't lose the locker room after yeah. last year's debacle. Oof!
1: He's best friends with McVeigh. They kind of talked about that. Yeah. Anyway, so I watched the Friends reunion on HBO Max. I can't see you being a Friends watcher.
0: I was. You
1: were? Okay. That's surprising. I mean, so you watch Friends, but not... Okay. Here's one of the r- reasons I hate the internet. All of a sudden, all week, because of the Friends reunion, which... Did you watch the reunion or not?
0: Half of it. I fell asleep.
1: Okay. Some parts of it were kind of cringe, but it was really good. I liked it. I mean, Friends is a kind of thing where it was on for 10 seasons. Like, the first four or five seasons were, I thought, amazing. But then at the last five were kind of give or take.
0: I hated the end with Joey and Rachel. That was awful.
1: It kind of overstated as well. I mean, think about it. They used to do like 22 episodes a year or something, like so many more episodes than they do uh, on so shows today. What's your take? So then all of a sudden, these people had to have these arguments about Friends versus Seinfeld and which one is better. And it's like, I yeah, liked okay. Friends and I like Seinfeld. We don't have to crown the champion of everything. And so people had to like prove how cool they were to say how they never liked Friends anyway.
0: Did this? Yeah, Friends was overrated? Yes,
1: people are saying Friends is overrated and like 50 million people watched that show Listen, back in the day or something.
0: That was a huge show. Friends was a great show at the time. If it aired today, would it be as successful? No, but it was a great 90s show.
1: It was. All right, one more. I caught Along Came Polly this weekend. It was on. This is my thing. Love that movie. I've been going on for Love a while that movie. about more comedy actors getting. Philip Seymour Hoffman deserved a Best Supporting Actor for that.
0: Make role. it rain? <laughs> he was amazing in that movie. How about when Alec Baldwin took the grease off his pizza? <laughs> yes. Oh, no, it was no. It was Philip Seymour Hoffman who did that, not Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin was in the bathroom scene when yeah. He hit him on the ass when he was at the urinal. He touches his ear. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's all I got. I finished Premonition by Michael Lewis, which was more a story, as it always is, about the characters than it is the actual pandemic, although there are certainly some of that. But you saw his daughter died in a car crash over the weekend, which is obviously just beyond horrific and unimaginable. And my God.
1: Do you think that feeling ever goes away of... Which feeling? When you have kids, of the thing in the pit of your stomach, like, what if something really bad goes wrong? Like I feel like I have that once a day, at least just what if this one thing goes wrong with that? I don't know. I don't think that feeling ever goes away.
0: Yeah. I don't even know what to say. Just unimaginable tragedy. All right. Let's end on something positive. Oh, this is also pretty good. When Brad Stone wrote The Everything Story, which I didn't read, he wrote that in 2013. So let's say he started writing in 2011. I bet he never thought that eight years later, he would be writing the sequel. Did
1: you finish it? I'm still reading it.
0: I'm about halfway so done.
1: Amazon Unbound.
0: There's so much in here. I mean, I know it's stating the obvious that Amazon has done a lot of things. It's a Captain Obvious, Captain Sherlock situation.
1: Surprising how much they opened the kimono for him, though. There's pretty in depth knowledge of their inner workings and how things were made. And, like, obviously, Bezos didn't open up to him, but a lot of people within Amazon did.
0: Well, one anecdote that stood out, there's many, was I forget what startup they were talking about, but Bezos said to his deputy, like, You see this? And he goes, Yeah, I'm on it.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's good.
0: What is this? Find out what they're doing, build it, buy it, squash it.
1: He's, like, very short and to the point, and, like, people take his direction and go with it
0: he does not sound like a fun person to work for
1: no awful it's great for us that we've reaped the fruits of his labor and that company built but yeah working there i would not last my personality would not make it in that setting
0: he would crush me like an ant okay (laughs) all right animal spirits pod at gmail.com thank you for listening we'll see you next time